Welcome to the Wizard of Whiskey podcast, the podcast dedicated to the hedonist lifestyle. I am here today with Monica Wolf. Of uh, she's the managing partner of Wolf Consulting. Monica, how are you today? Hi, Dustin. I'm doing well. How are you? I, you know what? It's a beautiful day. I've gotten already a ton of stuff done, and uh, and I'm just sitting here at about uh, 10:40 in the morning, uh, and I've got some bourbon in, in front of me. So <laughs> it's it's not a rough life. Oh wow! Yeah, you're living the hedonist life. I definitely oh, I- am, and, <laughs> and it shows. Um, <laughs> so Monica and I, um, we've known each other for a couple of years now. Um, she is a big bourbon enthusiast, um, and we've met uh, doing some judging competitions um, for 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 spirits and 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 working on the on the whiskey side. Um, Monica, tell us a little bit about uh, Wolf Consulting. Sure. Um, so about. A year and a half ago, um, I left my career in finance. I was living in Arlington, Virginia, working at a management consulting firm there, and um, I decided to move back to Louisville, Kentucky, which is where my family has been for the last 12 years, and um, get into the bourbon industry full-time. So Wolf Consulting is a consulting firm that my dad started, Richard Wolf, um, about six years ago. He um, he was a vice president, general manager at Buffalo Trace Distillery, and that's why we originally moved here those 12 years ago. He spent a handful of years at the distillery at Buffalo Trace, and then has since gone out on his own. and um, And now I've joined him. So, um, what he does is he brokers the sale of bulk bourbon. He helps craft distilleries, write business plans, either get them up and running, or um, just helps them with operational and um, financial issues that they may be having, kind of get them back on track. Again, brokers from the sale of um, found spirits, if that's what they need or are into, interested in. Um, and then also working on some M&A. So that's what he's been doing over the years that I worked in finance, which was six years after I graduated college, um, on my, you know, free nights and weekends, I often helped him with those business plans or just projects, you know, ad hoc projects that he had. So when I decided to move back, um, I kind of naturally migrated towards the bourbon industry. It's one that I love. I actually interned at Buffalo Trace when I was home from college for many summers, so kind of got my first um, first introduction that way. So I spent a lot of time around distilleries, spent a lot of time around the industry, just um, working with my dad informally and now formally as a managing partner at Wolf Consulting. So it's been it's been about a solid year and a half now, and um, one of the first things that I did was I was working at the American Distilling Institute um, Spirits Judging event, and that's where I met you. So <laughs> that was one of my first official bourbon industry jobs. And now I believe it's been two years in a row that we worked together on that and worked at the conventions that are associated with that. I've also done the same thing at the American Craft Spirits Association, judging and convention the last two years. Um, so it's been it's been fun. Not a, bla- a bad industry to be working in. No, it's um it's a lot of fun. This industry it's it's full of a lot of 
colorful characters. I'll, I'll say that. A um, lot of good times. And these conferences, by the way, people are... Um, how do I put this? Um, it's like Caligula, but but with booze. It's it's a lot of fun, and you really uh, to to be a fly on the wall at some of these is it's um, it would be pretty wicked. So um, it's a lot of fun, and uh, um, if you can join the industry, I definitely recommend um, definitely recommend doing so. But you better have a good liver. Um, <clears throat> so <clears throat> Monica um, is going to act as a um, as one of our bourbon experts for the for the Wizard of Whiskey, um, because there are a few people who know uh, more about it than than her. Um, so um, so let's let's kind of jump right in. Um, Mon, what uh, what are some of your your go to uh, bourbon these days? So these days, um, I obviously have. I have a warm spot in my heart for Buffalo Trace just because that was kind of the original bourbon that I was introduced to before I knew anything about whiskey. Um, from Buffalo Trace, um, Blanton's and Eagle Rare, Blanton's Bottling Hall for any of those that have ever been to the distilleries. It's a unique little place where they do the actual barrel dumping and bottling and packaging and you know, labeling by hand. So I spent you know, a good bit of time in there. Um, and I happen to like the Blanton's bourbon a lot. So I like Blanton's for people that are interested in something a little less expensive. Eagle Rare. Eagle Rare 10-year-old is, um, I would say that's my go-to from Buffalo Trace just because um, it's actually the same recipe as Blanton's. Blanton's is a six-year-old single barrel, the first single barrel ever. Um, but Eagle Rare is a 10-year-old, same recipe, for about half the price. So that may be a little-known fact for people that aren't, you know, involved in the industry. But I love Eagle Rare. So Eagle Rare from Buffalo Trace. And then another favorite of mine is Four Roses. I really like high rye bourbons. And um, Four Roses Small Batch is just a really nice, um, it's smooth. I think that their uh, little tagline is "be mellow," but they have high rye bourbons, but they're they're mellow and they're smooth and um, they're pretty easy to drink. So um, I oftentimes, if I'm at the store, will pick up an Eagle Rare and a Four Roses and always have that in my cabinet. And it doesn't break the bank either, as we all know. Some of the some of the prices are getting a little out of control these days, so. Yes, that is that is definitely true. Um, there there are plenty of bourbons out there um, that have been around for a long time that that are you know they're great go tos and they're they're not that expensive. Um, you don't have to spend a hundred bucks, um, which is very easy to do these days on whiskey. Right. Um, you know to 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 have a decent you know a decent bourbon. Um, so um, so you work a lot with uh, with consumers. Um, at Churchill Downs, um, talking about bourbon and lecturing on bourbon, um, let's dispel a few a few myths about what bourbon is, um, and and you know some of the the common misconceptions. Um, one of the things that I hear often is that bourbon must be produced in Kentucky. Mm-hmm. Do you hear this a lot? 
Yeah, I do actually. Just because, um, I mean, obviously, well, not obviously. Some people in Kentucky actually still think that. <laughs> but also <laughs> it being a large racetrack and we get a lot of people from around the country and around the world, uh, the different races, um, that, that don't know the bourbon industry as well as those in Kentucky should, um, there are still people out there that think that it has to be made in Kentucky. Um, and actually, here's another myth that I'll add in. Um, people ask, oh, well, well, I've had somebody say, oh, well, I don't really like bourbon that much, but I like whiskey. <laughs> Which, you know, I was kind of like, oh, that's interesting because bourbon is whiskey. So, you know, the two things are not all whiskey is bourbon but all bourbon is whiskey. So, you know, bourbon is American whiskey, but there's Irish whiskey, Scotch whiskey, Canadian whiskey, Tennessee whiskey. Um, and then, yes, all bourbon, 95% of the bourbon is made in Kentucky, but it doesn't have to be made in Kentucky, just in the U.S. So that is that is a myth that even people, some people in Kentucky, oddly enough, still don't believe we're educating them one by one. Yeah, there you go. Um, for those listening, uh, in 1964, Congress actually took up this issue, um, making bourbon our national spirit. Um, but according to that uh, that law, and actually the the Taft law back in uh, in the early 1900s, um, bourbon can be legally made anywhere in America as long as it contains a mash bill of at least 51% corn. Um, and is aged in new oak barrels. Um, a lot of myths around this as well. A lot of people say it has to be a minimum of two years in those barrels to be called bourbon. Um, and if I'm not mistaken, that's actually the designation for straight bourbon. Yeah. Um, so um, it just has to touch the wood. Now, if you want something right. that tastes good, you probably want it to do more than touch the wood. But technically, right. um, that's all it needs. Correct. Yeah, I am. Um, one of my favorite bourbon stories is um, back when Dave Fickerel um, was developing um, uh, Makers Forty Seven. Forty six. Forty six. Yeah, you're right. I'm sorry. Um, back when they were developing uh, Makers Forty Six, um, they, um, as a as a joke, um, submitted to the TTB, which is the Tax and Trade Bureau. Um, for those who don't know. Um, a um, a certification that they had poured the whiskey into a barrel for five minutes, um, rolled it down the line, and then poured it out, and it was considered uh, um, a, a joke. But um, there there are people that do that. Monica and I have been doing some judging and um, uh, over the past few years, and people have submitted product that's touched wood, and they'll say for just a few moments. Uh, um, in some of their descriptions, and it's quite interesting that that people um, take this kind of um, legality. And I don't think people realize um, the legal and regulatory issues with producing um, spirits in this country. It's kind of a pain in the ass. Um, so if you're drinking something um, right now, America or or the rest of the world, if you're drinking an American craft spirit or a bourbon, um, it took a lot of uh, a lot of work Blood, to get it. Blood, sweat, and tears. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> a lot of peers. Um, yeah, it's it's pretty nuts. I've never had to submit a cola. Or I've never had to submit anything to the TTB because um, I don't produce. But uh, I've I've seen people do it, and it's 
um, it's insane. Um, Although it's I did insane. hear recently that it's been a two-week turnaround time for submitting coals, so that's kind of that's record record-breaking. That's fantastic. I remember back um, during the shutdown a couple of years ago, um, they were still. Uh, it took them years to to get back um, uh, to to a decent time frame because um, it was taking months and months. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's so that's pretty awesome. Yeah. Um, so um, so yeah. Um, so, so I'm just going to throw this night- in really quick. You mentioned the 1964 Act that officially declared bourbon the the spirit, the native spirit of the U.S. and um, solidified the laws around it being made in the U.S. and the other different um, requirements. And um, if anybody is interested, I'm reading a book, I'm almost done with it, called The Bourbon Empire, The Past and Future of America's Whiskey by Reed Mittenbuehler, M-I-T-E-N-B-U-L-E-R. And it's really interesting. And it covers all the myths you could ever want to have busted and history of the industry and um, how it's gotten kind of um, back where it is now and then what's going to happen coming up. So it's a pretty interesting read and has a lot of information there that's not as well known. So I would recommend that book highly. No, that's a, that's an awesome book. Um, And I'd love to have, um, I'd love to have Reed on the on the podcast, and uh, someone you you probably know pretty well, Mike Veach. Um, him mm-hmm. and I have been talking for years, and he actually helped me um, a little bit um, with some of the ideas for my bourbon book, which started in in '09, but basically snowballed, um, and I'm still working on it now. And <laughs> here in 2016, um, it's because of the huge expansion and, and the huge growth of the industry. Um, I understand that Kentucky um, is planning um, in in Louisville and, and in other places, you know, Lexington um, is planning huge expansions, not just the big, you mm-hmm. know, distilleries, but a lot of craft distilleries. Um, mm-hmm. You know, in in Kentucky, there there's a lot more production going on now, um, and a lot of expansion. Michters, um, have you been out there yet to the to their new place in Louisville? I have been to the downtown location, but I haven't been to their their distillery yet. Although I believe it's still under construction. It's in Shively. Oh. Yeah. Nice. I mean, tell us a little bit about the culture out there. Um, You know, just like I said, it's expanding, and um, you you know a little bit better, obviously. Um, What's what's happening on the ground there? Well, it's really interesting just, um, you know, having been – when we moved here 12 years ago, that was right at the start of this whiskey boom. It was just starting to kind of – get momentum and at the time Buffalo Trace was still kind of a sleepy little place I mean there was there was tourism but it wasn't anything like it is now I mean not even close and you know everyone wasn't there wasn't a big buzz about it it was something here in Kentucky obviously that everyone was proud of and part of the history here but you know anywhere else like I'd go back to, to college and obviously after I was 21, my dad would send me back with, you know, a bottle of Buffalo Trace of Lambs and, and whatnot. And I can tell you for a fact <laughs> that I was the only girl that would ever show up to a party with bourbon. And not only that, girls or guys, it just wasn't something 
you know, that millennial group was familiar with. I mean, everyone was like, what's that? You know, so I had a lot of explaining to do. But these days, I mean, of course, anywhere you go, everybody knows Bullet Trace or any of the other large brands, and it's a thing, and they're in cocktails, and it's part of the culture now. So, you know, circling back, it was 12 years ago, um, you know, we had a great tour. We had, we were set up for uh, leaving Bullet Trace, you know, f- for the interest, and we had people from around the country. But then compared to now, I mean, it's just night and day. It is just every distiller, every heritage distillery here is, you know, expanding production-wise, redoing gift shops, getting a more buttoned-up tour, getting their visitor center, you know, spruced up. And it makes me happy in a way because everybody is kind of on board and gets the magic of distilleries and distilling um, and this, this whole bourbon culture. But in a way, too, there's something kind of bittersweet about it because, um, you know, with that comes commercialization. And in any industry that gets as big as bourbon has become, um, you know, it gets commercialized a little. It gets, you know, of course, the master distillers have become little celebrities. And, you know, I think it'll always have its charm just because bourbon in and of itself is such an authentic and genuine um, industry and thing. But I just think, you know, we do have to be careful to kind of preserve and maintain that authenticity um, as it continues to grow. So here on the ground, um, of course, huge expansions at all the heritage distilleries, um, Angels Envy, finishing up their distillery downtown Louisville. I think they're going to, I think they're going to start producing this fall and um, be open for tours in their visitor center. So they're finishing up on that. I mean, every day, you know, they, I, the still's already in and, and they're about to be up and running. So that's exciting and interesting. And then Bullet in Shelbyville, Diageo is opening a Bullet distillery. And um, that's actually like five or ten minutes from my house. $115 million distillery being built. Um, so, you know, everywhere you turn, there's, you know, brown ground being broken and stills going in. And there's one called Jephtha Creek also in Shelbyville, about ten minutes away. That's a craft distillery that's uh, in the works. So you mentioned Nictors. Peerless downtown, it's a great bourbon distillery. Uh, we've got Copper and Kings, which brandy, um, but they age their brandy in bourbon barrels, used from Woodford and Willet, um, and are you know really integrated into the bourbon culture here, and have become a really great little spot for the community. They host a lot of events. It's a beautiful distillery right in the heart of Lulu, town called Butchertown. Um, so, you know, right and left, it's just, it's, everyone's excited about it. Everybody, the thing that I love about the industry is everyone's so passionate, you know, coming from a finance background, let's just say everybody wasn't necessarily out of bed every morning to go to work, but here, you know, it's just, you know, people love what they do. I mean, how can you not? It's a really environment to be in and I think being in the heart of you know still in it 
what there's rather be. Um, it's a pretty exciting time. It uh, it definitely is, and and you mentioned the passion of the industry. Um, there definitely is, and you can you can taste it. It's something tangible. You can taste the passion, um, and um, and the blood, sweat, and and the hard work and tears that goes into producing this. Um, it it takes a lot of work, energy, and effort to leave what you're doing. Um, mm-hmm. You know, a lot of these uh, craft uh, spirits producers. Um, this is their second life. This is their, you know, their dream was to, you know, make enough money or, or you know, at least, you know, do something, um, you know, for, for X amount of years and then and then open a, um, a distillery um, because of the passion that they have for spirits and the passion that they have for craft and, and hand crafting something um, from, mm-hmm. from start to finish. Um, so... Um, and what Monica means by by heritage distilleries, um, for those who don't know, um, it's it's really the ones that kind of started the industry in in Kentucky. Um, I've been to most of them, most of the big heritage ones. Um, my last trip to Kentucky, there were very few craft distillers. Um, mm-hmm. Most of them were were the big boys, um, and and that's not to say that they don't make quality product. They make fantastic products. Buffalo Trace is one of my favorites. It always has been. Um, I've got a bottle or two of Pappy floating around. Um, um, the the original stuff, you know, that was um, that was the old Stitzel Weller um, um, produced, and uh, you know, I've got uh, I've got a couple of E. H. Taylors floating around, and of course, I've got some Buffalo Trace and a bottle or two of Blantons, um, which is which is a fantastic uh, whiskey. I mean, it's it's stellar production. Um, it is. It's high quality, and it's it's one of those that that you really it's memorable, but it's also not going to, you know, break the bank as much as you know a, a comparable Scotch would. Um, scotch versus bourbon, um, and this is something I wanted to talk to lo- a little bit about with with you, Monica. Um, you can get a pretty exceptional bourbon um, for about the between half and sometimes a third of the cost of of an exceptional Scotch. Um, mm-hmm. And and I want people to realize that that there there's plenty available, there's plenty out there, not just the craft guys, but the but the big ones are, are producing some some great stuff. Um, you know, we've talked about we've talked about Blantons. Um, I'm actually I've got two bottles on my desk right now. Um, one is Coppercraft Distillery. Um, they I've got their straight bourbon. Um, they're up in uh, <clears throat> up in Michigan, and then I've got um, Cleveland Underground, which is a bourbon whiskey, and it's actually finished. In um, in black cherry wood, and this is their batch two, um, really interesting little little spirit out of Cleveland, Ohio. You actually get a lot of um, um, of the uh, of the cherry coming through on the finish. So both interesting bourbons. Um, so so you can really have some fun with it, and, and bourbon doesn't have to be um, just this old um, image. And, and this is this is why I originally became a fan of whiskey is because I've always been an old soul. Um, and I thought, oh, it's cool to be, you know, in your early 20s, um, smoking a cigar and drinking whiskey. Um, um, but that, but that's no longer the case. You, you can, you can have fun um, and drink bourbon. It's no longer an old man's drink. So, well, and I'm not an old man, so I'm, I'm living proof. <laughs> this is very true. Um, <laughs> and um, 
one other thing, just, you know, going on that whole, the passion in the industry and the passion and excitement that's here in Kentucky and specifically Louisville, which is where I live, um, just to bridge that, that connection with, um, being, being a part affiliated with Buffalo Trace and the larger distilleries. Um, but now working with my dad and working within the craft space, you know, it's really exciting to me to see, like you mentioned, people, you know, living their second career, their second lives or their second, um, you know, job even because some people still have their old jobs and are doing this on the side. Um, it's, it's really interesting how an industry like, like the bourbon industry in Kentucky has taken off to have, I mean, there are over a thousand craft distilleries now in the U S from 70, 10 years ago to over a thousand. And I mean, if that's not a revolution, I don't know what is. And, um, you know, that's the thing that's really exciting. Yes, in Kentucky, you know, yes, the history that we have here and, you know, that's where the majority of the bourbon is going to be coming from just because they have the capacity um, at at the distillery and, you know, stills and everything production-wise. But having, you know, a thousand craft distillers across the U.S. and all those little pockets of enthusiasm popping up all over the place, that's what excites me. You know, you talked about how we met at the uh, spirits judging events. You know, we go back there and there's 600 plus spirits sent from all over the country that are looking to get evaluated and, you know, getting some good judging notes and some constructive criticism on their products and how they can improve. And if they're good enough, they you know can get an award that can help differentiate themselves from the others. Um, you know, that's really exciting to me. And, um you know, I mentioned that I'm partnering with my dad, Wolf Consulting, but I've also uh, formed my own LLC, and it's called Entrepreneurial Spirits because the entrepreneurial spirit of these distillers and what they're doing, that's the shot in the arm that kind of gave me the courage to be like, all right, I'm going to leave my career and the safety of direct deposit and <laughs> 401ks <laughs> and all of that um, to really try to help this craft spirits industry as much as I can and you know like what my dad does you know writing those business plans and giving them guidance and navigating the industry and the nuances like the three-tier system and you know regulations and you know forecasting and performas and all of that but something that I kind of identified um, was okay once they're up and running then what you know, like, yeah, they've got to sell bottles, but also, you know, getting foot traffic, that tourism that the heritage distilleries, um, you know, have the luxury of because they've got these great marketing budgets they can promote. And um, the craft distilleries don't have that advantage. So how do they get exposure? How do they get the foot traffic? How do they get brand awareness and brand loyalty without spending hundreds of thousands on, you know, print ads and commercials and billboards? Um, So Entrepreneurial Spirits I formed, and uh, I've started doing corporate events at craft distilleries as a way, as a platform to showcase the distillery 
you know, we'll have the event there. We have business owners from all over attending. You know, I'll do craft spirit tastings with their, you know, different spirits, but also craft cocktails. So it's another way to experience what they're producing there. And then everybody gets a tour. You know, we'll do local farm-to-table hors d'oeuvres, some, you know, restaurants here. And, you know, I'm fortunate because in Kentucky we've got a great farm-to-table restaurant industry. Um, But, you know, that sort of a thing I really think kind of helps with the brand building and the brand loyalty and the exposure that these distilleries are um, trying to get. And at the end of the day, it's going to really help to – to make them a staple in the community that they're in. You know, a thousand distilleries, a thousand craft distilleries in the U.S., that's a lot per state. So, you know, how many different vodkas, how many different gins, how many different whiskeys can be put on one store shelf? Well, you know, if you, you being the craft distillery, can at least own your local market. And you are, you know, in the community as kind of like a a place where people gather, not just for distillery tours, but for corporate events or have your wedding there or, you know, have a concert there on the weekends or people bring their families. It doesn't have to be just for, you know, the distilling geeks of the world or people that are obsessed with bourbon. I mean, it's obviously for them, too, but um, it's kind of a shift in the mindset of what a distillery is, Um, so that's why I formed Entrepreneurial Spirits, you know, as a kind of an event, a craft event company. And obviously I'm starting here in Louisville and Nashville I've included in because it's not too far away from me. Um, but, you know, if you think about it, like before Prohibition, every town had a distiller and a brewer. You know, we didn't have these huge companies, oh, Southern Wine and Spirits and, and all these places. You know, everybody, every town produce their own and those distilleries were kind of you know they had they had a bank they had a distillery they had a jail (laughs) you know the towns were self-sufficient in that way and you know and after prohibition a lot the majority of them were wiped out so i feel like this revolution this craft revolution is kind of getting back to those roots which is american and entrepreneurial and you know authentic and so if those distilleries can manage to uh, sustain themselves based on their local market, their local community, they're you know, becoming a staple in, you know, whatever city or state that they're in, you know, that's a way to really ensure that as many of them as possible can you know, stick around for the long haul. So um, that's just a little side note there of, you know, the spinoff our great heritage distillers here in Kentucky, but also um, how can we how can we keep the craft distilleries that are not that are in Kentucky and also not in Kentucky? How do we keep them um, on this on this bourbon train, the spirits train? Really, it's the it's the spirits market train. Absolutely, um, absolutely. It's. Uh... It's a great time to be in the industry. It's a great time for the consumer because there's so many options now that it's not even funny anymore. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and you get those different so. taste profiles, you know. These smaller places can tweak recipes. They can experiment, you know. They can they can do the things that the large-scale production distilleries can't, you know, just snap their fingers and, you know, and, and change recipes. So it, it's really cool. There are a lot of options. There's a lot of cool stuff. 
and uh, and there's a lot of good quality stuff too. Yes, there is. Yes, there is. And there's um, there's a learning curve. There's definitely a learning curve. We, Monica and I have both tasted a lot of uh, whiskeys, a lot of craft spirits. Um, and uh, They're not all the best. <laughs> right. Um, that's a very political way of saying it. I like it. I was going to say there's some crap. Um, so, yeah, but, but there is. And, and honestly, um, that's why a lot of them submit to... Um, these types of judgings is because it's not a consumer judging. It's a, it's focused on helping them improve, um, which is which is great um, that these things exist, and uh, um, and ultimately I think the the um, I think the industry is going to continue to grow. I think it's going to improve upon itself. I think you know it's going to kind of regulate itself in the, in a way that it's going to kind of force itself to to make you know incredibly high quality product. And a lot of it is a lot of it coming out. You know, these people they have a distinct passion, and if they're not happy with something, they won't sell it. Um, which is which is great because it's their own passion that drives and regulates them to to produce the best uh, best possible uh, spirit. And, and the uh, market eventually, not to interrupt, sorry, but the market also will eventually, uh, you know, it will shake out, and you know, the good ones will stay, and the ones that haven't managed to. Um, you'll get to the quality that they need to be will, you know, disappear. And that's kind of the nature of small business and that's the nature of competitive industry. And, um, you know, so it's, it's an interesting time also because, you know, a thousand and growing, not every single one of them is going to make it. And you, you know, you've got to have good stuff in the bottle. You've got to have a great story. You've got to have an, you know, a place for people to visit and see where it's coming from and, you know, either tour or have an event or, you know, you know, put yourself out there and kind of build your brand. So, yeah, I would say over the next few years, there will be a bit of shakeout and, and uh, the ones that have actively been tweaking and making themselves better and they're going to they'll stick around. Absolutely. So so it's a fun time to be a consumer um, for all of you listeners out there. Go and experiment in your local markets. There's a pretty decent chance that there's some type of distillery within, I would say, most places within 100 miles or less. Definitely. Um, almost every state, I think, has at least one distillery. I think Oklahoma, if I'm not mistaken, correct me if I'm wrong, has only one. But uh, I think Kansas might have a couple now at this point. But um, Texas, I know, has quite a few. The South is littered with them, um, not just in Kentucky, but Tennessee has more than just Jack Daniels and George Dickel now. Um, Florida has quite a few. I just talked to someone from Washington State earlier today, a pretty decent producer. They're producing a lot of stuff, and they have a ton of distilleries up in the Pacific Northwest, Oregon, Washington, I'm in California where I think there's a new distillery opening every week. <laughs> um, so, um, yeah, so, so get out there and drink. Stores, your local liquor stores will have, um, you know, whatever's close by. And the interesting thing about, you know, the smaller distilleries is you know, they're not producing thousands and thousands of barrels. So they don't even, even if they wanted to, uh, they're not going to necessarily be shipping it halfway across the U.S. So you and your, you know, local community, local 
you know, city or state, you may have the opportunity to taste things that someone else, you know, a couple states over just hasn't ever seen, hasn't had the opportunity to try purely because of uh, quantity or distribution. Um, so it, it, it's fun and it's specific to your region, you know, what it, what it is that you're all going to have access to and be able to try. So definitely, you know, instead of grabbing something that you, you've had all the time or one of the larger brands that, that you can find anywhere, you know, pick something out you've never tried before, that you've never seen before. Do a, Google it and do a little research on the distillery and where it is and how they make it and who made it you know, their story, why they started making it. And it just, it, it creates a little little experience around, you know, the cocktail or the spirit that you're drinking. No, that's absolutely true. Um, you can you can have a local experience that, that really kind of transcends um, your expectations um, in your own backyard these days. Um, you don't have to travel to um, regions like, I'm not suggesting that you don't, but I'm saying you don't have to travel to a place like Scotland or Cognac or um or the Kalisco or Kentucky <laughs> or Kentucky, yeah. Um um to get good uh quality spirits. Um they exist most likely in your own backyard. Um and there's craft distilleries um popping up all over the the world, not just here in the states. Um Tasmania has a couple. Um New Zealand and Australia to to name a few. India um they're they're growing in production china obviously um in the, in their craft and, and back in europe um people are they're they're bucking some of the old traditions which as a sommelier bugs me but as a whiskey and and, and um spirit lover um doesn't bug me um so i'm a little torn there but uh um yeah get out there and go drink america that's uh Experiment. that's yeah <laughs> Don't be don't be shy. Um don't be shy. So um I want to thank my very special guest, uh, Monica Wolf. It is always a pleasure to have you on. Absolutely. Um, thank you for having me. This is a fun topic of discussion. It's never work. <laughs> so Exactly. Um, enjoyed the conversation. Good, good. Next time Monica and I are uh we're gonna taste some bourbons uh virtually. Um, so we're going to set that up and uh, make sure you join us next time um, on, uh, on Wizard of Whiskey.